0: That was great. The fourth psalm we're doing in our psalm series called Feeling Better is Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is what's called an acrostic psalm, which means that every stanza or verse or section starts with a new letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the great thing about acrostic psalms is that they're a little bit longer. And they don't just focus on just declaring a truth But they actually, they're, they're, they work through it They seem to repeat, but they're, they're trying to work in a truth They're trying to burrow it into our hearts they're, they're, It's a little like a solvent Trying to dissolve and break up some of the hard crust of our worldliness Our psychological fixations Our deepest temptations, right? And so the, qu- the question is what, is what human thing is this acrostic psalm Spending this time going after? Uh, and the answer is that the majority of people who struggle with faith, whether they're religious, irreligious or anti-religious, one of the first things they'll say, either makes it hard or feels like it's impossible, is that the world does not appear to be governed by a person who is good at governing. Whether they frame it in the context of suffering, that a good God wouldn't allow all the suffering, whether they just say, look, the whole world looks out of control, it doesn't look ordered, That's the objection, and um, though it's offered oftentimes philosophically or in a logical form, um, what this psalm reveals and argues is that it's not actually a logical argument. Um, There's no way we could ever know how a relatively infinitely complex universe governed by a divine mind for his own purposes, only some of which have been revealed to us, ought to be governed. The reason why we have such a problem with it is because of our intuition. We feel it must be. There must be something wrong with the governance of the world. There must be something wrong with the world being this way and God being good. It, It must be the case. That is, it is fueled by our experiences, our feelings, our emotions, our intuitions. And sometimes intuitions are a very valid way of knowing things. And sometimes they tell us very invalid things. And so this psalm exists to tell us this isn't a very actually though deeply tempting, invalid, and untrue emotional intuition. And yet it uses the word fret three times in the first eight verses that you'll hear in just a minute. Um, The word fret is built off of a Hebrew word for kindling or kindling a fire. You can kind of see this because when we fret in anxiousness, it's kind of like building a little fire and kindling it up into burning and putting a little bit more wood on it. What happens when you emotionally allow things to kindle like that? They burn, and they burn into anger, and envy, and hatred. The world seems out of control to us. Not because it is out of control, but because it is out of our control. And we find ourselves, because of that, tempted towards all the gods of power and control to grab power and control for ourselves so we can control our out-of-control lives, so we can keep bad things from happening to us and make good things happen to us no matter what it takes. And the minute we will grab those idols, we become the kind of people who will do anything. And we go from the kind of people fretting about the evil in the world, and we become the kind of people that this passage calls the wicked we become the kind of people who actually perpetrate most of the evil we lament. So listen to those themes as you listen to Becca, read this psalm.
1: Psalm 37 of David. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked, for the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty but the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. The wicked borrow and do not repay. The righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, and those he curses will be destroyed. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young and now am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouths of the righteous utter wisdom, and their tongues speak what is just. The law of their God is in their hearts. Their feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, intent on putting them to death but the Lord will not leave them in the power of the wicked or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future for the wicked. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. I think
0: this is a clicker. Any these over here. The, um, the main point of this psalm is pretty straightforward. What he wants to teach is in the first eight verses, and then the rest of the psalm, he kind of works out the basis of those things, right? And so the first basic idea is just simply, don't allow yourself to fret over what you see in the world. That intuition, when you walk out in the world and things aren't the way they're supposed to be, whatever that means, and you get that feeling like, they shouldn't have done this to me. It shouldn't be this way. Why is the world so full of this? You know, I'm young and older people won't take care of these problems. When did they sell out? And there's all these different logics and experiences and reasons why we start kindling up frustration and fretting about how the world is, and it tends to produce two emotions. It tends to produce the emotion of envy because we see other people who don't play by the rules doing fine and getting ahead. And we feel like playing by the rules, doing what God wants, trusting in God, trying to delight in him. is kind of—it's like holding us back. Right? We we just can't win by these—playing the game this way, right? And the other is anger. Because what kind of God would ask us to play handicapped in this game, this way, and so we're envious of the wicked, and we're angry towards God, and it's like a fire that we're kindling in our fretting. And it just burns bigger, and it burns bigger, and it burns bigger, and it cannot simply be contrasted by you coming to church and hear me saying sentences that—that claim the opposite. Emotion has to be met with emotion. Now, sometimes your emotion is built on confusion, and when somebody clarifies that, like, it kind of— it lets the air out of the emotion. But emotions like this, that's not how it goes. Emotions like this have to be met with their—their emotion bound up in the lie, and they have to be met with the truth bound up in passion to live by and to see the truth and to believe the truth. You've got to—you've got to fight through doubt. Doubt just doesn't lay down and die. It's just not the way the world is. It's not the way we function. And so what this psalm does is it, it talks to us about how we feel and what this does in us. And it rehearses and it talks about the way the world is and it goes over it, hopefully, until we feel something. And until that feeling can really combat the fire that is kindling and all the fretting and anger and envy that is naturally produced by our limited experience out there in the world. And then there's the positive of trust in the Lord and do good. Doing good in the context of the psalm is how you trust in the Lord. Don't envy the wicked and then copy them and become the perpetrator of the very thing you're fretting about. But trust God and because of your trust in God, do good and delight yourself in God and in what he's doing and in the good he calls you to do. Right, in different places is trust in God. Do good. Take delight in the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Accept the modesty and poverty that you might experience in righteousness. Even if you think by engaging in wickedness you could advance faster, and be generous and thankful towards God. Right, and so how do you do this? Right, obviously the answer is always faith, and the object is always God, and what God is like, and what God has done. But what what David is trying to open the door on here is he's trying to get us specifically focused on three blindnesses that the fretting intuitions of our anger about the world being out of control, right? We've got this fretting. There's three kind of blindnesses that create that. Can I bring that up further? Okay. The first is— Um, the distinction between righteousness and wickedness, and how if you understand that properly, it doesn't produce self-righteousness, but it produces humility and hope. Now, in the Old Testament, when God was creating the people of Israel for himself, and he gave them a law, one of the things that he demanded be true about them is that they learned how to distinguish things from each other, that everything in the world isn't the same— and you actually can't understand what God is like in a sinful world, right? If God created the world good and sin has like chalked it full of curse and brokenness, and those are laid over each other in the experience and the reality that we live in, that's confusing. And unless God teaches us and we learn how to un those two things to see what is God's good creation, see what is the brokenness of sin, we can't really understand how to live, how to feel, how to act, how to be. And so what God is saying is one of the first steps is you've got to learn how to distinguish things rightly, right? And when you get to the book of Hebrews, there's this place where the author of Hebrews is talking about, like, really complex stuff. In fact, most people, when they read—if they read the whole New Testament, there's two books they say are the hardest to read, like, just to understand. Romans and Hebrews. For a lot of people, Hebrews is the hardest. But he gets to chapter 5, and this is what the author of Hebrews says. You guys, it's like you still need milk, and you're not even mature enough in the faith to have solid food yet. Solid food is for the mature who having trained themselves— notice that the emphasis here on training is not on divine grace, but on your discipline and choice to be disciplined in it. It's by grace God helps you, and his Spirit helps you become mature, but here the emphasis is on you have to graciously strive, right? But the result is who by constant use have trained themselves to what? Distinguish, and the main distinguishing thing is between good and evil. Now, that's really difficult in our culture right now because in our culture, the, the basic understanding of distinction is, is that if distinctions are the basis of discrimination. And so if you think that, like, you can make these distinctions, that, like, this is this and that is that and they're not the same, what that's going to lead to is believing that you can treat people differently, that you can act differently, and that you can create these distinctions so that you can think you're in and everybody else is out. Right? And so if I—and the reason why they're afraid of this is not just because of that logic, but because they've seen it. And oftentimes they convince themselves that they've mainly seen it among religious people. Now it turns out that there are a lot of phenomenons that exist among religious people, that is, people who believe in a faith, that actually exist among all people. And if you're a religious person, it is so obvious to you how irreligious people do this thing. And it also turns out that if you're an irreligious person, it is so obvious to you how religious people do this thing. But in fact, it's just a universally human thing that we make distinctions sinfully and selfishly so that we can discriminate people and count some people in and some people out for our own benefits. The question is, how do you solve this problem? This universal propensity of human beings to distinguish so that they can discriminate. And the biblical answer is this. You learn the right distinction. You don't pretend there aren't distinctions in the world. You don't pretend that men—men and women, you can't tell the difference between them. You don't pretend that like thievery— William F. Buckley Jr. had this great quote. He said, Listen, it will not do to say that a man who pushes an old woman in front of a bus and another man who pushes a woman out from in front of a bus are both the sort of men who push old ladies around. There are real distinctions. If you think about the 1960s um, protest in Memphis by sewage workers, it was the last—it was the last thing Martin Luther King was part of, right? He was killed in Memphis at the Lorraine Hotel, right? And there was—there was this this famous sign that they made, I am a man, right? What's the implicit argument in that sign? I am a man. The implicit argument in the sign is is that the the distinction you're making between black and white is an illegitimate distinction because— We know some legitimate distinctions. The sewage workers weren't saying you had to pay them as much as a lawyer. They were capable of realizing that those two people do different kinds of work. They have different kinds of schooling. They've done different kinds of things. They're probably going to get different kinds of salaries. But if you have a white sanitation worker and a black sanitation worker who do the same work the same way, the same level of skill, and you distinguish on the basis of their race, that is an illegitimate distinction. That is Wisdom should show us there is no way that you can just, like, back out of the moral responsibility of learning the right distinctions in the world. There's no easy answer to this. Relativism cannot save you from being hard-minded and mature mentally, emotionally, and in your character. But if you do accept the reality that distinctions must be made, we can make the right distinctions, and when we do, when God teaches us the right distinctions, many of our selfish, personalized, self-righteous distinctions will be shown for what they are, and we'll be able to repent of them. It will be great. The confusion, though, that this can lead to, though, is is that once you realize that the entire Bible— but especially the Old Testament, and a lot in the Psalms really focuses on one major distinction— the distinction between the good and the evil, the wicked and the righteous. Now, we don't—in the, in the Christian church, we don't focus on this very much because we are used to laying it out in one of the categories of faith and redemption in the New Testament of that we're all sinners, right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God freely, by his grace, through the death of Christ, offers salvation to everybody who will believe, right? That's knocking down distinctions, right? We're all the same in sin. We're all offered salvation through Christ. Everyone can believe. God treats everybody the same without distinction in that sense. But all through the Bible, God is constantly saying that actually the most fundamental distinction that he believes in, besides the distinction of creator and creation, that we're not gods and that only he is God, the very next one is, is that he distinguishes between good and evil righteousness and wickedness, and he will never back down on that. In fact, the entire reason Jesus came was so that all of us who God would would have distinguished as unrighteous and wicked—that's all of us— would have to be destroyed. The entire purpose of the work of redemption was to create a way to change the distinction. To—that is, not to change that there's a distinction between good and evil, but to get us on the other side of it. To get those who are distinguished by evil into the category by which we can be distinguished by uprightness or justice or goodness or righteousness. And in the the Old Testament, you didn't—you weren't counted righteous because you were a good person, and so therefore God loved you. Every place in the New Testament that talks about how we're counted righteous or counted right is always connected directly to faith. It's always that faith produces faithfulness. Faithfulness to God always produces character, justice, uprightness, and what God calls righteousness. Godliness always produces that. The New Testament is no different. The New Testament claims everywhere that all of us come to Jesus. Wicked is the day we were born. But when Christ saves us, we receive the Spirit. We're regenerate of heart and God changes us through faith into faithfulness. In Romans 4, Paul says, how do we know that we're saved just by believing in Christ? That by believing in Christ, God credits righteousness us. He says, because that's how Abraham got saved on page 24 of the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and God credited to him his righteousness. And then God spent like 30 years changing Abraham. Right? In Habakkuk—we talked about this last week—it says the righteous will live by their goodness, right? No, right? No, right? Habakkuk, which gets quoted four or five times in the New Testament, says the righteous person— how—how do they accomplish this? How do they live by righteousness? The righteous live by faith, it says. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that righteousness—real righteousness—is a necessary fruit of real spiritual life, and therefore real faith, where—and when God saves us in that real faith, always produces faithfulness, which always produces godliness. And in the Old Testament, God spends a specific amount of time showing us the differentiation between those two, so we know how to make the distinction. So that when Christ comes in, so that first when we hear the law, we can be like, oh, I'm on the wrong team. Then when Christ invites us to walk with him into righteousness and to forgive us and to credit righteousness us, we realize how much we need that, how much we want it. And then when we walk with Christ, we know the path we're taking, and we can follow him in it. This distinction is incredibly important, and it is God's distinction, and he governs the entire creation by this distinction and by his goals wrapped up in this distinction. And you see, if you proceed in your feelings about the world and how it's governed on any other basis, If you think God should care about your happiness, or your wealth, or your health, or your background, or what family you were born into, or your experience of your body, or or whether or not your marriage worked out, or how your—like any of those things, we fundamentally misunderstand the second most fundamental distinction that God makes in his governance of everything. And so that blindness is going to lead us to be very upset at him. It's going to lead us to envy others who seem like they're having an easier time, and it's going to lead—that's going to lead us to be all the more angry towards the God that we think is making us play handicapped, when he's not. The way he's governing the world is for your eternal good. Okay, the second thing is, is that God's deeper wisdom through— that we need to see God's deeper wisdom through the apparent foolishness of his governance. I, I realize, and I agree, that from my personal experience of me existing in my five senses in this temporal moment, that if I looked out there—listen to me. Let me be just really honest with you for a minute, okay? Because—because I know you agree with me on this to your own eternal shame, and let's just be honest, okay? Most of us have either a moment or many moments in our life where we do believe, whether we're willing to even say it in our internal voice or not, that if I was omnipotent and omniscient, I had all power, and I knew everything that was happening, I could govern the world better than this, right? Anytime you say, God, why? That's what you're saying. I disagree. I believe that if I had all power and all knowledge, with my level of intelligence and my set of values, I could govern the world better than this, right? So some of us have taken that thought to its logical conclusion. Others of us are just going to be like, oh, God, why? But it's a, we all feel that way because the way God governs the world is apparent foolishness. We would never govern the world like this. Well, the reason is why in Isaiah 55, when God talks about how he governs salvation, he ends the section by saying, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heaven above the earth, the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Like we, we print it out and put it on a refrigerator. God's basically telling us about how idiotic we are. Right? Which is really good for us and freeing and produces humility and hope. Right? Now, there's this verse in this passage that you may have picked out because it offends many of our modern political and educational sensibilities where David says, I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or the children, or their children begging bread, they are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Now, we see that, and that is an extraordinarily offensive distinction within the culture in which we live in. And to the extent to which that culture has affected our outlook, that statement will be offensive, okay? And that's why I think God had it put in his word. Because our natural inclination is to say, no, there's too many variables. Like, I know really good people who are having a really hard time. And like, like, I just don't agree with that. Like, that's prosperity or security or having enough to eat, having your kids turn out well, blah, blah, blah. That is, there's a lot of luck in that. Like, you can't, you just can't say, right? Now, the problem is, that's what it does say. David is an older man. He's been governing a country for 30 or 40 years. He says—he puts this in the song, and he wants it to affect us, and he goes, listen, I have been a king for a long time, and I've looked around, and I've observed life. I will tell you, as a wisdom statement, not literally 100%, but the—but the exceedingly vast majority of the time, the righteous are not forsaken. Their children don't beg bread. They do well. Now, is that a biblical prosperity gospel? It's not really. Not really. Here's what we don't want to believe. We don't want to believe that most of the misery that we endure is our fault. We just don't want to believe that. Or somebody else's fault. Very close to us. I mean, I remember when I first got here, there was um, a guy going to the church at the time named Murley, and everybody said Murley was this fantastic guy, and Murley is a fantastic guy, and he got this just, like, this weird lymphoma, and then the, he, he got treated at a part of our medicine in America that's socialized that didn't go very well, and then he just d- declined precipitously, and he just had a really, really hard time. Um, but I've been a pastor for 15 years now. I can't—it's probably more than—I don't, I don't remember. What it is, but it's, 15 plus. I have counseled hundreds of people, okay? Hundreds of people. And I can count on one hand the number of people who are in troubles of various kinds who did not contribute very significantly to their troubles. Every once in a while. And most people will admit it. And in order to actually grow out of it, you have to admit it. Back is, john Wesley was once asked, what is your fear for the Methodist movement? Because, um, Wesley, the Methodist movement reached mostly poor people—a lot of coal miners, right? And—and and the, the implicit question was, like, do you think—what do you think's going to happen to your movement? Like, yes, yeah, all these poor people. Do you think—you think ultimately they'll turn against God because they're not wealthy enough? And he said, no, this is what—this is what I'm afraid of. He said, when people come to Jesus, Jesus changes them. Part of what he changes in them is their character, their morals, their, their industry, their—all these things about them. If people behave that way, they must grow rich. When they grow rich, they will have something other to trust in besides God. And my fear is, is that many of them will. And he said, and that's why I preach generosity. And you'll notice in this psalm, generosity among the righteous is mentioned a number of times. Because Wesley said, taking wealth to yourself and not being generous is like heaping burning coals into your lap. Fire does stuff. Take the coals and give it to somebody else that needs fire. Don't put it on your lap. Because you need to keep yourself in a place where you need to continue to have faith in God, and if you're in a place where you don't believe God at all for your provision, that's a really dangerous place to be. King Agor said, give me neither poverty nor riches, so I don't grow proud, so I don't fall into theft, and dishonor you. Or say, who is God? Let me give you an example of this from economics. In our present world, popular economics— the way people think about wealth is they think that these four things are essentially what wealth is made up of. Legal wealth—that I have my rights. Technological wealth—I have this stuff that helps me do things— phones, cars, right? Silk shirts. Liquid wealth, which is like just money, right? And then we talk a lot about this now, especially in places like Madison. Privilege. Like just gifts and stuff you have just because you're you and you don't have any control over, but it's—it's real asset, right? That's all real stuff. There's—however, one of the things that's specifically true about all four of those things is that they're not really enduring. Thousands of years ago, and for all of human time, what most people understood human wealth was, was two things. The first is what you can do, which economists now call human capital. People used to call it character. And secondly, who trusts you and you trust, and who you are there for and they're there for you, which people used to call family and friendship, but now we call social capital. It's a little embarrassing when you explain all these things away in modernity as though they mean nothing, and then later, through scientific research, you realize that they're all true, but it's too embarrassing to go back to what we called them for 5,000 years. And so we don't call—you know, we call self-control and perseverance executive function now. Isn't that cute? Right? But all of these things actually—in fact, there—a number of economists have estimated how much of anybody's wealth are in these different things, and a number of the estimates put the amount of actual capital at 80% for one of these categories. That of all your wealth, 80% for the average person is in one of these categories. You know what it is? Human capital. What you can do. Now, there could be a lot of reasons why you have the level of human capital that you have, And some of that may have to do with your past and your privilege and what money you had and so on, right? I have degrees that I paid a lot of money for, right? We turned liquid cap—but here's the thing. I counted it as worth it to turn that liquid capital into human capital because human capital is more valuable, right? I paid years of my life for it because it's more valuable. Character and friendship are the greatest forms of wealth anybody can have. And it's one of the reasons why it's such a travesty and violence against the poor, for the wealthy—for wealthy people to demand that everybody has the right to live profligately. That we shouldn't say things like, don't commit adultery, and don't fornicate, and tell the truth, and don't gossip, and all those things of character, because the people who do that have millions in liquid capital waiting around to deal with the shattering of their lives. And the poor don't. The only wealth they've got is human capital and social capital. And when you deconstruct morality and character, and you deconstruct the bonds of family, and you deconstruct the bonds of friendship, you rob the majority of the population of the planet and people, all people, of most of the wealth they can have by destroying the capacity. But there's one thing that gives it. There's one thing that gives real wealth freely, more than anything else can give it, more than any college can ever give it, more than any inheritance can ever give it, and it is actually godliness. It is the gift God naturally gives to any who by faith will trust him and walk with him into faithfulness. He will change you. You know why a lot of people can't get jobs? Nobody will trust them. Nobody trusts them. They don't show up. They know what they're supposed to do. They waste their money. They don't have the character that when a bad thing happens to not do another bad thing. You know what happens—you know what I say about—about 15% of the time when I'm counseling people whose lives are just in a death spiral? So my main counseling for that day is just stop doing stuff. Because what happens when you don't have perseverance and self-control? When something bad happens, what do you do? You do something bad. (laughs) You try to fix it with something that's more worshipful of the idols of control and power. And it usually just goes much worse. And then it gets worse, and then you do something else, and it gets worse, and then you lie to somebody to hopefully get ahead to make up some of that lost ground, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and then people come to you, they're like, I'm a good person, but really bad stuff is happening to me. I'd be like, you're a good person, but you don't ever act like it. But it—because people don't realize—I mean, there's a psychological word for this now. Conscientiousness, which basically means character. Right? Conscientiousness means you always do your best at every moment. You're consistent all the time because you actually never know when your big break is going to come. Part of the reason why so many people miss their, quote, big break— to move ahead in life or to find the person that they want to love, to get married, knowing when to do things, deciding— is because they're busy screwing around assuming that when their break comes, there's going to be like some flyer two months in advance so they can get ready for it. But that's not how life works. Breaks catch you. That's how the natural world functions. And so if you're dead on all the time, when that moment comes, you're going to hit the ball over the fence. But if you have been preparing every minute, and if you're not consistent all the time, and if you don't have grit to fight through, when that moment comes, it doesn't work. And listen, we can say human capital, social capital, conscientiousness, grit, executive function. All that is reinvented psychological jargon for a vocabulary of wisdom that has existed for thousands of years, called in its entirety, godliness, invented by God. I mean, imagine if He copyrighted all this stuff, right? Bad. It'd be the public domain by now, thankfully. The wealth that it, this is why, over and over again, David can say. The, the wicked disappear. As you notice that theme? You'll see this all through the psalms as you read. They'll say, you will see the wicked flourishing. He says, I saw the wicked man who is flourishing like a native tree. And then I looked again and he was gone. Another verse says, the wicked are like flowers in the pasture, flowering in the field. And then the very next day, the goats go out and eat them and poop them out. Just gone. It just it they evaporate. And here's the reason why. Because their lives are built on cheating, and eventually the wicked always overplay their hands. Did you notice that part where he says the, the swords that they draw will be the swords that pierce their own hearts? Those who live by the sword of wickedness die by the sword of wickedness. And when the crash happens, it happens immediately. And it just shatters, right? I, I have a friend who is um, a contractor, and he said when he would build houses, he said one of the things that drove him the nuts the most was that everybody wanted sod. Because who wants to pay like 200-something thousand dollars or more for a house, pull up to this brand new house surrounded by nothing but dirt, right? That is a little anticlimactic, right? And so everybody would pay the extra $15,000 for the sprinkler system and the rolled sod. He said, the reason that drove him nuts is you'd go back to the neighborhood like three years later when there'd been a two-month drought, and you'd you'd drive through the neighborhoods and everybody had these like, these yellow patches, or their whole yard was dead, or, right, or it was like turned up or torn up. And he said, "The, the problem is when you, when you cut grass into sod, you cut off the depth of its root, but you lay it down whole so it looks great. But when you—when you, when the sprinklers throw out water, they don't throw out much because nobody wants to pay that much in their water bill. And so they drench the top of the soil, and then that's it. And so the sod runs its its roots out on the first inch or two, and because you've cut the taproot and because they don't grow back very well, th- there's just no roots beyond about two inches. And so because of that, they they never really seal down. They're easy to tear up, and so— Japanese beetles and bugs get in there, and they eat up all the roots, and so you get these patches that are all dead. And then if it's, it's dry out, it all dies, and, and then it gets in—and then you get all these weeds and everything. And he's like, if they would just plant grass seed and just let it grow, quit with the shortcuts, let the taproot go down, let it make the grass. Yes, it's ugly for a while. Okay? Just like if you're on the wickedness team, or if you're just stumbling around, and you're like, look, Nick, my life does not look like whatever the righteous is supposed to look like. Look, all that matters is if you're stumbling in the right direction. Let—give it time for the taproot of Christ to go down in your life, and it will produce the foliage. You just got to wait for it. You got to work at it. You have to, with constant use and training, teach yourself in Christ to distinguish between good and evil, and then to live according to it, right? Faith, but if you if you plant the seed, what happens is if you have two months of drought, three months of drought, this, the the roots are deep, and you see. So when 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 people are righteous, and something happens to them, what happens? See, when, the, when something happens to the wicked when they, when they spend all their money, or they lose their job, or they overplay their hand, or something that they said off stage got recorded because the microphone was still on, or some foreign country hacked their email address, right? What, what happens is, is that for the wicked, people are like, you know, they have that coming. Like, I, I hated that guy. But you see, when that happens to the righteous, you know what people do? You can live in my house if you don't—if you lose your house. Can I get you through can we help you? Hey, I know some guy that would love to hire a person like you. That's what happened. And they just end up on their feet. It's the weirdest thing. But you see, in a world with so little character—so little character— a 100% trustworthy, hardworking, does everything as unto the Lord, full of cheerfulness, willing to overlook insults, humble but inquisitive, learning every day, fascinated at everything in God's world, willing to do menial jobs because all work is worth doing. That person doesn't struggle to find a door to open for them. Just don't. People are looking for that person because they're so rare. The reason why you don't ever see the wicked begging for bread is not because tragedy doesn't hit them, but it's because they have so much human capital in their character, so much social capital in their friends, in their family, and in their church, no one would ever let them fall. They're too valuable in the first place, and they're too loved in the second place. But if you live a life of utilitarian friendships, and lying to get yourself ahead, and gossiping to move around, and playing all the angles, and not remembering what lie you told where, you live that kind of life to eke ahead and just— not only is your heart going to be full of envy and anger, but you're gonna— you're gonna be roundly hated, and nobody's gonna trust you. In the whole world, in all things wholesome, in everything that's wholesome, the world functions on trust, and trust functions on character and there is no other way around it. Now, the reason why this is important is because, of the, because God has intentionally created the world to show us this. Right? God—God God does actively function on a different timescale, but he also functions for very different ends. And the way he governs the world in that way is actually kind of astounding. Right? He talks about how the wicked disappear, and how those who draw their swords will die on them, and how he works in those ways. But—but but what he also—what he, what he shows is this—and and this is from a book by Jonathan Edwards called um, The Nature of True Virtue. It has no longer 18th century title, but that's, the, that's what it gets called these days—The Nature of True Virtue. And he says this. He says, we have problems with the way God governs the world—the world. But if God's intention is ultimate and eternal perfect love, freely given and received by truly virtuous beings, redeemed in Christ, reformed in the Spirit, prepared for that kind of eternity, formed and forged in pain and struggle to eternally forge faith and hope, and so therefore to eternally create an effluence of love. He has so ordered this world so that the truth and what is good actually produces much goodness, and wickedness isn't as bad as it could be. Edwards refers to this as common virtue. So, for example, we can—we can all be wicked, right? But at some point, you're going to be a little too arrogant that I— and I know if I let you get off that way, uh, it's going to be bad for all of us, so we're going to nail you back down. Right? And if I let you be this—quite this greedy, we're all going to kind of gang up on you, right? It's, it's politics, basically, right? It's—people are naturally self-interested in their sin in such a way as they don't want to let other people take advantage of them. And there's, there's this whole way in which wickedness limits wickedness and can't help but respect righteousness. Can't tell you how many wicked bosses hire as many righteous employees as they possibly can. They're stupid spiritually, but they're smart economically. You see, God can—has so ordered the fallenness of this world so as to not be as bad as it could be, to produce all possible human goods, because then even in this world, we have access to joy and pleasure. We have access to what we need to be transformed in the gospel. In all the pleasures of love and union and truth and friendship, Are just in this world, but they're not expensive. They're free, and all that can exist in this time where things are kind of screwed up. Yet God has so ordered it that righteousness can be maximized, wickedness won't go its full way, and that these things are kind of leaned up against each other in such a way of creativity so that God can accomplish his maximal work of transformation, his maximal work of invitation for people to come in, and he can also allow wickedness to produce its own fruit so that we could see it and we could learn what the truth is and what lies are. He can speak and show himself in that world and call people out and all—do all of this at the same time to serve his eternal purpose of salvation and of true virtue, and of ultimate redemption. And if you get a, like an inkling for how kind of ingeniously complicated that all is, you will get over very quickly your anger and envy and kindling rage at how God orders the world and how, how awful it must be. Ultimately, at other times, whenever somebody fell, we would, we would say, oh, God cursed them. I mean, as a human race, we. And if some people did well, we we would say, oh, God bless them. And then Jesus—then the Bible comes along, and Jesus comes along and says, it's not that simple. God raises some people by blessing. God pushes down other people by cursing. But there's also all kinds of other space so that people won't play games with God and come to him just for benefit. But generally speaking, to know if God punished somebody or God lifted somebody up in blessing, you need a prophet is what the Bible teaches. You need somebody who's legitimately told by God what God was doing, and then he can say, hey, the reason Babylon is going to come kick your butts is because you've been wicked for like 500 years. Right? The purpose of prophets is so that we don't jump to conclusions about who's rising for what reasons and who's falling for what reasons. Because the question is not, if I do this much, will I get that much? If I tie the 10%, will God make me rich? If I don't yell at my wife this week, will my marriage be better forever? If I, right? God isn't interested in that kind of thinking. God is interested in faith and in trust. So God says, this is how I work. Trust me. Trust me. You can trust me. You don't know how the world works. I do. I have a way I'm working things right now. It's leading to a different end than you may have anticipated. I am governing everything. And part of the reason why it's being governed the way it's being governed right this minute is because one of the specifics of how God has created the way things are right now is because God is constantly seeking to get people to switch teams if they're on the team of wickedness. Now, Ezekiel 18 says that everybody can change teams. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that at any moment, any person who's been walking with the wicked, who has been grasping the idols of control and power. Anybody who's allowed their hearts to be kindled up with the anger and the envy and the fretting of being angry at God for how he does or doesn't govern the world. Anybody who was raised with very little of the capital that would lead to good human and social capital, and you just feel a poverty of spirit all over your life. Anybody who is full of intellectual smugness about being so sure that the syllogism of if God is all good and if God is all-knowing, then there can't be evil, there's evil, so therefore one of these two things is false, therefore the Christian God can't be true, if you realize how infantile a logic that is. God is offering team switch by faith. You don't have to earn your way off the evil team out of the good team. It doesn't work that way. Isaiah 55, come all who are thirsty. Come all who are hungry and I will give you freely, right? Verse 8 says, Come all who are wicked to the Lord because he will freely pardon. In Ezekiel 18, he says, if a, He says, if a wicked man, though if, if he were wicked for long years, turns from his wicked ways and comes to me and does what is right, I will forget what he has done before. See, that's not earning your salvation. That's not works. Saying that the man had to actually be honest about his turning and then do good works doesn't earn him anything. It just shows that he's being honest. It just shows his faith is real. And then God atones. He forgets. He pardons. And he can do it. He can do it because there was one righteous who should have never begged for anything that all the swords were drawn against, that all the evil was done against, and that God did not uphold because he was not the one promised blessing if he'd be righteous. He was the one promised that he would be the atonement for all who would ever believe and come to God so that they could be counted righteous and transformed into someone who is like Christ and therefore godly and can be referred to meaningfully as righteous but never in a way that would create any kind of smugness. Because all the righteousness we could ever possess is still going to be by grace. It's still going to be a free gift. It's still going to be the work of God's Spirit, the the manifestation of his providence, the gift of his generosity. But that does not take away from the fact that you can live a righteous life. You can be godly. You never have to sin and know you're sinning again the rest of your life. That doesn't mean if you do, you're back on the wicked team. We're going to stumble a lot in the way forward, but what it means is don't let people intimidate you into believing that everybody's the same. God's most fundamental distinction is that that is not true. We are not like God. There is a distinction between the creator and the creation. And people are not all the same. When it comes to their race before God, they're all the same. When it comes to their sex before God, they're all the same. When it comes to their possessed Sexual orientation, all the same. When it comes to their wealth, their age, go through a lot of things, they're all the same. And all of those fake distinctions are shown to be fake on the basis of one distinction that God demands that we acknowledge. That there is a distinction between those who will trust and delight in God celebrate his good governance, and to live in accord as a magistrate of his good governance. We all work for the government if we believe in Jesus. We're all government employees. And because of that, we live like him. We act like him. We seek to be conformed to be in his image. And yes, it takes—it takes maturity and growth and help and grace and the Spirit's work 2 Peter says, we've been given everything we need for what? Godliness. And so, yeah, we ever have to be vigilant about being humble. But don't let anybody ever lower the standard of what you can be in Christ. You can be what the Bible called an oak of righteousness. You can be what they called Gladys Allward, Ai Wei Dei, which was Buddhist for the righteous one. You know who she was? She was a British charwoman that China Inland Mission wouldn't even let into missions. But because there was this really old lady running an inn, she bought a fur coat and took a train across Russia to serve this 80-year-old lady by cleaning bathrooms and stuff, and then the old lady died, and she became—God made her Ai Wei Dei, the righteous one, such that the Chinese people, after the Boxer Rebellion, buried her facing China on the coast of Taiwan because she loved that country so much, and because they saw every act that she did for their good, from stepping in as a white woman into a prison riot, to traveling all over the provinces to stop foot binding, to leading something like 200 Chinese orphan children across a few hundred miles, so that when the Baptist doctors finally found her, they said—they said she should have been dead five times over because of all the cases of of pneumonia and all the other stuff. They should have long killed her. She wasn't smarter than you. She wasn't anything more than anybody else. She trusted in God, and she delighted in God, and she wasn't angry because God didn't give her a husband, and she wasn't angry because she was lower class, and she wasn't angry because the ministry people didn't give her the right hand of fellowship, and she wasn't angry because of any of that stuff. She didn't let it kindle rage and anger and envy. She poured out her heart before God that she believed in Christ, demonstrated his beautiful governance of all things, and she gave herself to him And everybody who didn't even believe in her faith acknowledged one thing, that there was a distinction between her and many other people. She was the righteous one. There there is—there's nothing between us and that for our own life than our own fretting, our own rage, our own envy. Let it be put on Christ in this moment. God, as we get ready to sing these closing songs, I pray, Holy Spirit, please stir in us. That wicked emotion must be fight, must be fought with faithful emotion. The truths of your good governance of all things most beautifully displayed in your governance of Christ's coming death and resurrection, and your display that any can turn to you. And that this is your purpose in these times—to forge in us true virtue in a world broken by sin, and to draw all people to the goodness of Christ freely and generously. And we admit what it says in Isaiah 55 that our ways are not your ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are higher than this earth, so are your thoughts, including the thoughts of your governance of the world, higher and better and truer than ours. Please free us in the humility and the joy of believing that, trusting in growing in ranges. I mean, as they get it-